Before we look at the scripture this morning and begin to talk, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we believe you are amongst us because we are gathered in your name. We thank you for the freedom, Father, that we enjoy in this country to be assembled together to freely worship. We pray for brothers and sisters around the world right now, Lord, fearful and trembling, trying to meet and under great distress. May we never take it for granted. It's because of that, Father, that we pray for our leaders, that you would grant them wisdom, that you would allow us to continue to live our lives peaceably and to bring glory to your name in our everyday lives. Father, we admit to our need for the Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us, to help us understand the verses we are looking at today. Remind us, Lord, that we come together not just to study, but we come to laugh with each other. We come to cry with each other. We come to share each other's burdens. We come to show the world what true community is. May we leave here today, Lord, more loving, more kind, more secure in what we believe, and yet more than ever standing and marvel at what it means that you came to live on this earth. Help us, Father, to know that no matter if we understand all mysteries, have all the wisdom in the world, and yet have not love, it's to no avail. Bless our understanding today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, Mike sent me an email, and he said, would you be willing to speak this day because he has to be out of town? And I read further in the email, and he, he gave me the scripture, John 1.14, and I sat there, and I almost said out loud, wow. That's, you talk about theology, you talk about the depth of Christian understanding and all that it can mean. That verse says a lot. And I said to myself, how in the world do you unpack what that verse says in 20 odd minutes. Uh, I gave you a hint about how long we'll be here. <laughs> uh, I always love that story about the, the kids who go to each other's churches and each one is telling the one next to them what it means when the, the leader in the front of the church does certain things. And they get back to the Protestant boys' church and the preacher takes off his watch and sits it down and the kids are far in the back and they can't see what he did and the little boys say to his friend, What's that mean? He says, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have my phone. I don't have a clock. I don't have a phone or a watch, but I have a, a phone here, which will keep me on track. Anyway, let's take a look at John 1.14, and we'll think a little bit about what we're going to try and, and, and get to today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the, as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now that, we're going to read it again. I forgot to remind you, if you don't have a Bible and you want to read along, the Pew Bible, page 1053, 1053, you can find that. It's also uh, the Easter, or I'm sorry, the uh, ESV version of, of Scripture. But let's read it again and think about this. Uh, and the Word became flesh. That's extremely important. And we're going to, we're going to look at three words today. I've underlined them in these verses, right, or in this verse. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So we're going to focus on the word and focus on dwelt and glory. Those are the three things that we'll try to get to today. All right? Next slide, Matt, if you would. Now, I just mentioned this, but I want to kind of put it 
highlight it a little bit. On the left-hand side, you'll see word, the Greek word logos, logos, logos. We'll get into that to set the stage for what it really means at the tabernacle, that he tabernacled with us. We're going to look at tabernacle, what it was in the Old Testament, how Jesus is a picture of the true tabernacle in the new, and then we'll look at the glory that, that John is talking about that was revealed to the, those who walked on this earth with him, okay? So let's move on now. Now, I thought about how to, to, to say this or put this down, so I thought maybe a little cartoon would help me make the point. Because when, when, when uh, uh, Mike asked me to talk about this, I said, oh, there's people on the left side of this screen. There are people out here in this audience, and there may be people watching online. They're academics. They've got it down as far as knowing the ins and outs of the scriptures. They've studied philosophy. They've studied religion. They've studied this and that. And I said to myself, well, what can I tell them? I mean, I'm a layman. On the other hand, we have people on the other side. We have newbies. We have people new to the faith. Some people, this is a brand new look at the scripture that we're looking at today. For some people, it's something that's just new and exciting. And what we want to do today is remind ourselves that we can know everything as the left, left side should. We can have it all figured out as, as far as our theology, or at least we think we do. We don't, but we think we do. We can do that. But if we do not have love, if we do not have an, 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 a compassionate, caring spirit of love, it means nothing. And many times you'll see new people in the Word, they are so in love with Jesus, they're so in love with what they're learning, it's a shame for us who've been in the Word for many, many years to look at that and say, where is my joy? Where is my excitement? So what we hope to do today is find a way to make both sides of this equation happy. Some of you are in the middle. There are some that have been in the faith for a while, some that study not so seriously, but there will always be somebody, always be somebody who knows more than you, and there will always be somebody that knows less than you. But the main thing, as Paul says in Corinthians, is love. Okay? Now let's move on. Now, I said to myself, there is no way in these few minutes that, that we have that I could ever, ever, ever discuss properly what this word meant to the Greeks, what this meant word to the Jews when they heard it, when they spoke Greek, and we'll get to that in a minute. The reason I say that is because we, we can read this in our translation. There's nothing wrong with the translation that says word, but it's woefully inadequate when it comes to understanding what they heard when they saw this word logos. They, they didn't think word the way we think word. And this is something we're going to touch on briefly here. This is a word that was, to the Greeks, it was an abstract term. It was impersonal. Uh, it was a force. It was the, the, the rational divine intelligence. It was how the cosmic uh, universe was ruled and governed. It was orderliness. It was all of these things. And if you go to the next slide, uh, Stu, I'd appreciate it. This word, you have to go back 500 years before Jesus walked the earth to find the first inkling of what this word, how it was being used in that day. Uh, some of you who know uh, philosophy and have studied it over the years, you're familiar with Heraclitus, probably the first guy who put this word down and began to talk about it the way that they understood it. Uh, others that you'll see up there, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Epicurus, Lucretius, and so forth, all of these. That's 500 years before Jesus came to earth. Now, go forward a couple hundred years after that in the early 300s, and you have Alexander the Great. You've probably heard of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is the conqueror of the then known world, and he makes his way down through the Middle East, and he goes further east all the way to Egypt, 
founds a city, humbly names it after himself, Alexandria. But remember, Alexander had a tutor. Does anybody know who his tutor was? His father made sure he had a good tutor. His tutor was Aristotle. And you and I may say, well, what's this got to do with Christianity? What's this got to do with what we're getting at today? But if we don't have a grasp at how the Greek culture influenced that part of the world in that day, we will never understand what John is saying when he uses this word. When they hear this word, it's a call to attention. And they understood it. Remember, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, the Septuagint. Some of you know, the 70 people, 70 other people who translated the Old Hebrew Bible, Old Testament scriptures, into the Greek because that's what they read and understood in large part. The New Testament is written to us in Greek. Many of us, it takes us years to understand, well, why in the world do they talk about this word in the Greek? Well, the reason is because it was written in the Greek, and that's how it was translated then into the Latin, in the Vulgate, and then it was translated into English. But we need to go back in time and understand this word has been circulating now for 500 years, and the philosophers have been debating it. They've been talking about it. It's one of the most wor uh, uh, frequent word in the New Testament translated as word, logos. But in this particular instance, it means it has a much more pregnant meaning, meaning than what you'll find elsewhere. Okay, let's, let's move on just a second now if we can. Now, this is the remarks. I, I, I did a fair amount of reading getting ready for this, and there's a, a guy named Michael Marlowe. He's a biblical language expert. Here's something he said, which I think probably more compactly says it than what I could say. And he says, when he asserts, when John asserts that the Logos became flesh, he is indeed saying something that was never dreamt of by Philo. Philo was, lived more at the time of Jesus, uh, slightly B.C. to around 45, 50 A.D., in right in that era. It was never dreamt of by the Greek philosophers or by Philo, but in all other respects, it is their logos, the cosmic mediator between God and the world, who is the personification of God's truth and wisdom. That John is referring to when he asserts that Christ is its incarnation. So when, G, when John uses this word and he writes it down to the Greeks, they heard this. He is saying that that thing, we've, that abstract thing we've been talking about is now come down in a person. And that sometimes is, I think, for us who almost take it for granted as believers, we lose the, the awesomeness of what that really means. Unless you really sit and stare and meditate, stare at the sky and meditate and think about what you really believe. That whoever created, that the, that the God who created the billions of stars and all the light years, all the things that we study and see, came down to live in flesh like you and me. And for them to hear that, it was amazing. Okay, move on, please. Frederick uh, Godet, a, a, a famous Swiss theologian, some of you may have read, but he said something that I thought was interesting. He's, this is, a, is an indictment. He says, to those Hellenists, the, the Greeks, and the Hellenistic Jews, on the one hand, they were vainly philosophizing on the relationship of the finite and the infinite. To those investigators of the letters of the scripture, now he's speaking to those that are studying the scriptures, who speculated about theocratic revelations, John said by giving this title to Jesus, the unknown mediator between God and the world, the knowledge of whom you are striving after, we have seen him, we have heard him, we have touched him. Your philosophical speculations and your scriptural subtleties will never raise you to him. 
He's saying all your philosophizing, all your study, it will not raise you to this Jesus. Believe as we do in Jesus, and you will possess in him that divine revealer who engages your thoughts. So he's saying you believe in him, he will raise you up to begin to grasp, to begin to understand. But if you do it outside of that, it's nothingless. It's a great quote and a great writing. If you've never heard of him, you might want to go back and look at some of his writings. A great exposition on the book of Romans and others. Okay, let's move on. Now, settle that to say, okay, that helps us get to what we, Mike really wants the focus to be on today, which is he, he dwelt with us. He tabernacled. This is the first Sunday of Lent, and um, we, we want to think about what it meant for him to come down and to live uh, in this body on this earth. So he tabernacled, and the word is, has the idea he pitched a tent. The Greek actors used tents to change uh, between scenes, and it's where we get our word scene today. But it was simply a tent over a wooden structure that the Israelites used in the, in the wilderness as they're traveling. And if you go on, we'll talk about that in just a minute. You can read about this more on your own in the book of Exodus, but just a few scriptures to highlight a couple of things. Let them make me a sanctuary, God says, so that I can dwell among them. So now they've, they've left Egypt, they're wandering, and God is going to fellowship with them. I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. He tells Moses he'll commune with him there. So Moses becomes this picture of the mediator between God and his people. You see, keep that in mind. It was temporary. It was on the move. If you read and look, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure about this, but I think I'm close. It's 40-odd times they picked the tabernacle up and moved it when they're, on the, when they're on the march or when they're on the move, okay? They don't move until the, the, the cloud lifts, and then they move. If the cloud stays, they stay put. Let's go on. Now, there was a cloud that dropped down. It says the cloud covered the tent. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation. And the tabernacle is sometimes called the tent of the congregation. Right? So this cloud descends. It covers it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this was the children of Israel. And they see this cloud come down. They know the presence of God is with them. Now, if you go on, please. The tabernacle was composed of different parts, different sections. But it had a large outer court where there was a laver, a place for washing, and the altar where they put the sacrifices. The inner court was the holy place, and it had the seven-branch menorah, the candlestick, the altar of incense. Remember, they, they needed a pleasant aroma because they're doing a lot of sacrificing. It probably was not uh, a place that smelled particularly good. But there was a table of showbread, the 12 loaves of bread that were there, one loaf representing each tribe of the children of Israel, was in the holy place. Then the innermost court was the holiest of all, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant existed. And the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. That was the lid, you might say, of that, uh, that bench. And that's the, the, the mercy seat. Aaron's rod that bloomed. And Aaron's rod that bloomed was to show them that he was who he said he was and the leader of the Levitical priesthood. They kept that in here. And then the pot of manna, which was uh, a pot of of uh, manna they collected to remind them of God's provision for them when they left Egypt, okay? Let's go on. Now, later on, you'll find the same cloud that filled the tabernacle fills the temple. The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, 
for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. And if it's been a while since you've read 1 Kings or read anything about the temple, you might want to go back and take a look at that structure. But it filled, the cloud descended, filled it, and the priests couldn't even do what they were supposed to do because the glory of the Lord was there. Okay? Now, in the New Testament, then later on, and this is why this word is so important that, that John uses here. He tabernacled. He dwelt. And he's saying that God came down and tabernacled with us in the flesh. So many things that were pictured in the Old Testament tabernacle are shown by Jesus in his life on earth. In Hebrews, it says a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up and not man. Remember that man set up the tabernacle. He's saying God has set up this in heaven. And Jesus is there. He is the true minister. The laver, I told you, was the, the place where they washed. It was the, a picture of Jesus and the washing that we uh, experienced. The menorah, Jesus is the light of the world. The, the, the candlestick lit the holy place. Picture the light of the Lord in Jesus. The altar, where Jesus is the sacrifice, the showbread, where John says he's the bread of life. All of these things can be extracted from the picture that the Old Testament gives us of the tabernacle to Jesus. In Timothy, it says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And you remember I just a minute ago talked about Moses being the mediator between God and the children of Israel. God communed with Moses. God took Moses to the to the mountain for the Ten Commandments. He's the picture of Jesus. The temple was portable. I'm sorry, the tabernacle was portable. Oh, that's my fault, typo. The tabernacle was portable. And remember that Jesus had no place to lay his head. So as the tabernacle moved, so did Jesus move amongst the people. And as he moved, he moved at his own speed. He moved when he wanted, how he wanted, and he reached the people that he wanted to reach with a demonstration of his power and his glory, okay? Now let's move on. Now we get to the part where it says, now we've, we've, we, we're claiming who he is. He came, he walked with us, and now he talks about glory. This is doxa. This is where we get the word doxology. It's the, the, the great word of the glory. Listen to what Plato, I mentioned a minute ago, Plato said in Timaeus, and, and I'm not trying to be some fancy Greek scholar or Greek philosophy because I'm not that well-versed, but some of you have read more Greek philosophy than I will ever read. But he said something very interesting. I want you to look at this, compare this to what John is saying. But the father and maker of all this universe is past finding out. And even if we found him, to tell of him to all men would be impossible. This is why we have to go back and understand what Logos meant to these people. This is one of the great Greek philosophers, Aristotle, Aristotle, saying what Timaeus, Timaeus says this, and we know Plato and, and Aristotle are basically, uh, in large part, echoing the words of Socrates, because Socrates didn't write things down, but Plato did. And so we have these thoughts. So they're basically saying it's past finding out. You can't see it, and even if you could, you couldn't tell anybody about it. And this is what John is saying came to live in the body that we call Jesus. Okay? Let's go on now. After, this is, a, this is a, a great verse that you can read about uh, in, in Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took Peter and James with him and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face 
face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Remember that whenever there's the glory of the Lord, people can't look, they can't stand it. It's, it's the brightness. And in this case, they're standing off to the side, and his clothes become white, just as light as white. And his face was shining like the sun. John is saying, we saw this. Let's go on to the next slide. First John, when John writes this, and I have often thought about this, he says, that which was from the beginning, this is Logos, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and we've touched with our hands, that life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And I've sat and looked at this scripture over the years, and I've thought about this. How frustrating. Have you ever known something that was true, and you're saying it, and someone won't believe you? Have you ever had that experience where you're just trying to get across something? No, I'm, tell I'm telling you. And John is saying, I walked with him. I touched him. I heard him. I saw him. And you won't believe. That's the Logos. He was here, I'm telling you. He was here. That's the beauty of this verse. And that's the glory that John describes in his book. You go on from this chapter, and in the rest of the book of John, you'll see him showing the glory of God through his life. He isn't just saying it was that one instance. He's saying his whole life demonstrated the glory of God, and we watched it when he had compassion, when he touched the leper, when he did all of these things that we talk about so many times over the years. We walk, Think if you walked and saw that. We're reading it 2,000 years later. But if you walked and you saw it and you, were mar you just marveled at it and then people didn't believe you, that would be an amazing frustration. Let's go on. Something very interesting in the book of Acts. When he is ready to leave, what does it say? What came down when the glory of God came down? A cloud. What does it tell us in Acts when he ascended? He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Another indication in the scriptures of what they were trying to get across, okay? Move on, please, if you would. Now, I thought long and hard about whether to put this slide in, and I thought, I'm going to do it. Um, you have to live on the edge sometimes. Uh, this is my way of saying of what we can do when we dissect the light bulb. You can only study the light bulb when you turn, the, turn it off, right? When you're assembling it, it doesn't light up. It doesn't, but when you flip the switch, the glory comes on. You can't study it the same way. Look at all the parts of a light bulb. The filaments, the lead-in, well, I don't know any of this. Stern, stern, I don't know what the stern press is, but I just looked this up. The stern press, the base, the gas. I forget how, long, how many filaments they tried before they found one that would work because some would burn out too soon and on and on. But they finally find this. The support wires, the button rod. I don't know what the button rod is, but that's like studying the scripture. People, my, my point is this. You and I can sit and we can study and we can read book after book after book and we can talk Greek and we can do all these things and we can understand that light bulb. But go to the next slide. If we don't know what it means to see that light bulb as it's lit up, it's worthless. It's worthless. It's the glory among us. It was the Logos. It's the light of the world. And if we get so caught up in studying, and so when I was preparing, I said, 
Don't get into too much detail. What's the important thing for us to think about today? He came and dwelled with us. That glory, that light bulb lit up in its completeness, walked on this earth so we could see how we should live. We study his life. We become disciples so that we can learn and hopefully learn to walk as he walked, to forgive as he forgave, to love as he loved, and on and on it goes. Don't let us become so concerned about the pieces of the light bulb that we forget to stand back and stare and marvel at the beauty of the light. One, I think it's the last slide. The glory that dwelt among us. May we never forget to marvel, to stand back, and just sometimes in prayer, just in silence, let it speak and realize what it is you and I say we believe. When you look at the stars and you see the galaxies, think the, the, the being that we call Father created that, came and dwelt in a body, and now abides with us in the spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be together. We ask, Lord, that as we leave here, we truly would be more loving and representative of what you want us to be in this world. We thank you for the opportunity to come together now, and we ask that you bless us as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.